Welcome, welcome. This is Plato's Pod Dialogues on the Works of Plato. Today is April 11, 2021. This podcast is audio recording of a live meetup group. We meet through Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, Online Rebels Meetup. I am Eva Ellis. I will be coordinating this episode and I would like to now pass the screen or the microphone to James Myers for today's discussion. Hi, James. Good morning, Eva, from this rainy uh, spring morning in Toronto. So how are you? I'm good. Thank you. And I'm excited. I would like to ask, what are we discussing about today? Well, thank you. And uh, so we, we were discussing, or continuing our discussion of Plato's Phaedrus, which we started two weeks ago when we looked at the first part that went to 257b. And so today we'll be picking up the, the remainder of the Phaedrus. You know, we, we had such a great discussion last time. And it was actually some of the most thoughtful, insightful ideas came forward in the discussion in our last episode. Things that I really hadn't thought of before. And I think it really helped to illustrate the, the power of dialogue and the power of speech. Because, you know, really fundamentally, this dialogue of Plato's Phaedrus is really fundamentally about speech and what speech does. And I think, you know, we'll start off today's discussion maybe by looking at the purpose of speech, which is in one of the readings that uh, is posted on the shared drive. Um, so, you know, very happy to, you know, have reviewed the recording of the last episode because some of these ideas are pretty amazing, you know. So, you know, one of the points made was that the meaning that's is derived from the use that we make of speech. And so the particular applications uh, that we're talking about, and I, one of the participants made the, the comment, meaning is derived in use. And I think that was a very powerful point. Another participant, I think it might have been JK, who's here with us today as well, made the, the point that the soul is maybe like a public entity. You know, public is in kind of a shared presence, you know, so what your soul does affects my soul, what my soul does affects your soul. And it's kind of this kind of public presence of the soul, you know, one soul affecting the other. And that, that kind of analogy to the soul being a public entity, I thought was a pretty powerful analogy to understand, I think, what Plato's trying to talk about uh, when he talks about the soul. The other comment that I thought was really interesting was the idea of a soul as a multifaceted entity. So it has different facets or faces. And, you know, the diagram that I have on my screen background here is a tetrahedron, actually, which is one of the five so-called platonic solids from, that, that Plato brought to us in his dialogue, the Timaeus, which we, you know, looked at in the past number of episodes. And you can see in this, this is actually a this screen image that I have behind me is actually a tetrahedron in a sphere and we can see the different facets in a tetrahedron you know there's there's you know four different faces and and this idea that that one of the participants brought in in the last episode of the soul being a multifaceted entity i thought was really interesting and, and you have to kind of touch the different facets of the soul because that's one of the things that, that plato wrote about in the first part of the, the phaedrus that the that the soul has these different gradients or different levels uh, of understanding. And, and that's something that we can certainly pick up on in today's episode. So definitely it was a great discussion last time. We also touched on the idea of general forms of understanding, and that got us into kind of thinking about the difference between 
a general form and a particular form. And then that led us into thinking about Plato's theory of forms, which I think is uh, starts to come through. The more I read this dialogue, the more I the more I see these connections, and certainly, you know, Plato's theory of forms does come through very strongly, I think, especially with this idea of the general forms that we started talking about last last time, this general form of understanding. And, and I think we, you know, part of our discussion last time focused on maybe the general forms being categories of understanding. And then from those categories, we come into specific areas of understanding uh, and deriving meaning. And we had that fascinating discussion last time, too, about translation of languages and translating according to meaning, uh, which was something I learned, actually, from our discussion. I hadn't realized that translation is made according to meaning. And so, you know, again, demonstrating the power of, of uh, dialogue and discussion is that, you know, we go into these things not knowing where we're going to come out. And I didn't know that I was going to learn all of those things. And now I've learned them. So uh, very, very pleased and excited to think about today's discussion and the things that we'll learn. So, so as I said, every time I read Phaedrus, and, and in fact, every time I read a lot of Plato's dialogues, I, I get these new um, areas of meaning and logical connections. And so I, I've sort of designed, and we can, we can take the discussion wherever we, we want today. There's no really set agenda, but I've sort of design, you know, maybe three different areas that we could look at. And those are in the um, the readings that are posted on the shared drive for those who access the, uh, the meetup notice. Um, and so we can look at those specific readings or we can go wherever people like in, in our own dialogue today. So that's, I think, the benefit of, of Plato is that there's no set agenda, there's no set way or order of doing things. It's really, you know, I think what we find in our own logical process. So again, welcome to everybody. Um, welcome especially to our new participants. It's always great to see uh, new people joining us and whether you're uh, experienced with Plato or whether you uh, whether this is the first exposure you've had to Plato, I, I think there's uh, hopefully there's something here for everybody. Um, and so very excited to have uh, new participants especially joining us today, which is great to see. So um, you know, again, the, the podcast is being recorded uh, in voice only today. We'll use the first name as it appears in your screen profile. If you want to change your screen pro profile just to show one name only, that, that's fine. Um, we'll use the, uh, the uh, raise hands feature on Zoom if you'd like to speak. And I'll, I'll take, as I have before, you know, kind of speakers in order that, they, that the hands are raised. Uh, but I'll, I'll give preference, you know, if somebody's spoken multiple times, I'll give preference to somebody who hasn't spoken before, which uh, I think is fair. And um, yeah, I think we will, uh, we'll start, uh, we'll start there. Um, I just wanted to uh, go back to this idea of general forms that I just spoke about, uh, and that we focused on in the first episode on the Phaedrus two weeks ago. Um, and Eva, maybe if you could bring up that first image, uh, and this is on the cover page of the reading notes that are posted on the shared drive, um, and it relates to this image of the tetrahedron that I have on my screen here. Um, so the image of the tetrahedron that I have on my screen background, the, the tetrahedron is a three-dimensional object, and it's one of the objects that I mentioned that, that Plato brought to us in his dialogue, the Timaeus. So in the Timaeus, Plato um, set out 
the only five regular solids in the universe, one of them being the tetrahedron, which is the three-dimensional object I have on the screen behind me. It's, uh, it's got four uh, triangular faces, uh, and each face is an um, equilateral triangle, which means that uh, at each corner it has 60-degree angles. And so if you could just bring that triangle image on the screen up a little bit, Eva, this is, um, just so we can see, yeah, that's great. Um, so this image on this, that Eva has on the screen, which is on the first page of the notes, is a two-dimensional tetrahedron. So this is what's called a net of a tetrahedron. So it's as if you took the tetrahedron that's on the screen behind me in three dimensions and you kind of folded it down into two dimensions, this is what you would get, the net of a tetrahedron. So what we're seeing here for our listeners on the screen is a two-dimensional object. It's an equilateral triangle, and, it's, it, and it contains four different equilateral triangles. And there's three different colors inside. And so I just thought it would illustrate the point maybe that we were talking about last time about this idea of general forms. And, and maybe just ask these three questions that, uh, that I've put underneath this, this triangle that's on the screen, this two-dimensional triangle. And the three questions are, what number of thing or things are in this image? Uh, second question, what number of thing or things in general form are there in this image? And then the third question is, what number of thing or things in particular form are there in this image? And, I just thought I would use this maybe to illustrate maybe a, one way we can think about Plato's idea of general forms. And, and so I just wondered if, I just thought I would put the question out there. Uh, it, would anybody like to answer any of these three questions? What number of, what number of thing or things are in this image? And then do you see a difference between general form and particular forms in this image? Uh, Joe. James, um, I, I'm just going to address the very first question, what number of things are in this image? And I'm, I'm not going to answer it, but I'm going to ask a question about it. Uh, I'm sorry if it sounds like an ignorant question, but in Plato's time, were the concept of infinity already discussed? That's a, that's a good question. I, I haven't, well, I mean, I think Plato certainly refers, maybe he doesn't use the word infinity, um, but, you know, certainly when, you know, I'm thinking of Timaeus 28a, which I talk about a lot, you know, that that just, my favorite passage probably in all of Timaeus is 28a, where he talks about this, this, the distinction between that which always is and never becomes, and that which becomes or, or always becomes, but never is. And so there's that distinction that he makes at uh, Timaeus 28a. And I'm thinking just, uh, Joe, in response to your question, maybe that idea of that which always is, but never becomes, is a way of referring to infinity or thinking about infinity. Um, I, I just put it out there. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure that, um, I'm not sure that he used the word infinite or infinity uh, in the way that we, like, you know, part of the problem is translation, right? I mean, when people translate from the ancient Greek into, you know, modern English, uh, there's different ways to translate words. For example, another way of saying infinity might be without limit, 
right? And so it's a question, it's a good question, actually, because we talked about translation in our last episode. And, and you know, if, if a word was used in ancient Greek, does it necessarily translate into the English word infinity? In fact, Joe, I think last time you raised the point about one of the words in one of the readings that we had last time. Um, here it is, actually. It's, it was in 249C of Phaedrus, in which... Uh, Plato said that, uh, I'll just read it actually, because I think it's a good point today. But a soul that never saw the truth cannot take a human shape, since a human being must understand speech in terms of general forms, proceeding to bring many perceptions into a, a reasoned unity. And I think, Joe, last time you, you raised the question when, when the translation says a reasoned unity, you asked the question, would it really be our reason unity? And so there's a lot in translation, I think. So I don't know what what do other people think about uh, about Joe's question and the and the idea about about general and specific forms in this gene. So during Plato's time, was the infinity constant infinity so-called discovered, so-called known? I think it already is framing, in framing, the question itself is framing something. It's not a completely open question. It's using language. It's, it's itemizing the knowing as a certain thing that we publicly and consciously seemingly aware and define what it is. So I think it's kind of half and half where they, it's possible that they may know in a certain way something, for example, subconsciously or unconsciously, but may not necessarily uh, clarified between the members. So it feels like it is not discovered, but they may know in a different, more vague level. So, mm -hmm. so it's not a yes and no question. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Gene. And actually, I think you just touched on a theme that we talked about last time, too, and I think will be more um, evident in today's discussion and this idea of knowledge as, as uh, remembering. Um, and so I think maybe what you were just saying, Gene, is maybe, maybe they didn't use specifically infinity, but maybe they had sort of some sort of internal memory of the idea of infinity, even if it wasn't explicit. Uh, if I'm just kind of maybe paraphrasing from what you said, but I think it's a very good point actually that brings us to this idea that knowledge is knowledge is remembering. And we'll, we'll discuss that today in the second reading that I've, I've got this, the legend of uh, Thamus, Thamus and Thoth, um, which I think is a really powerful uh, little legend that Plato puts in, in the Phaedrus in this part that we'll discuss today. JK, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with you that uh, yeah, the um, the their idea of infinity is implied in, in the whole whole concept of uh, concepts of being and becoming, because they already what they mean is that uh, that which always is always is a is is another word for infinity, and also their you know geometry and mathematics you know includes must include uh, numbers that go on for infinity right that uh, there's no end to to numbers uh, one way backwards or positively or negatively. Mm -hmm. So uh, so this uh, this image right here is, I think has to do with 
whole idea of uh, the one and the many. So if you're talking about one thing, there you could see this uh, as a one single triangle with smaller triangles within. So it, it would be one image in that sense. But there are also like, uh, you'd have also have to talk about these other smaller triangles within that are uh, includes the many images. Um, so that, that would, you know, if you, answer, if, you, if you answer the question, the first question, you'd have to also uh, go into answering the other two questions, right? Because in general, it's one image, but in particular, or, or yeah, it's, it's, it's the many and the one and the one and the many. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you actually, you raised in a, a few really interesting points there. I mean, first of all, you made the statement that numbers never end, which I think actually that's a powerful idea, you know, that maybe we can explore here because do we know of an end to number and did the ancient Greeks know of an end to number? I mean, maybe this is something that really um, disturbed them. You know, people say that they were disturbed at the idea of irrational numbers or incommensurable numbers. Um, and so maybe that's something that, you know, where that idea that Gene maybe spoke of, that that sense of infinity that's in there but couldn't be expressed, and then you see these incommensurable numbers that go on forever and ever and ever. Um, and so you, you made the point that numbers never end, and I, I like that. And and the one and the many was the other point that you made, and certainly that's one of the central theses of, or, or questions of Plato's Parmenides, which, you know, has been mentioned a few times in our discussions. Um, you know, the, is there a distinction between one and many? And so in this image here on the screen, the net, the two-dimensional net of a tetrahedron, you know, they, as you said, JK, you know, we've got one triangle that encompasses, you know, the other four. We've got different colors, but each of the triangles is the same. So, you know, we've got a mixture of the same and the different here, maybe. And the same and the different you know, again, one of the themes of, of the Timaeus, you know, in, in that dialogue where Plato or, or the character Timaeus describes the construction of the universe, there was that idea of the same and the different and mixing them together. It's a hard mixture, you know, that, that, uh, that they make the point in Timaeus of mixing the same and the different. But maybe I'm wondering if we're seeing that in here, um, in this, you know, two-dimensional rendering of a three-dimensional tetrahedron that's here on the screen. Um, and so just wondering, you know, again, you know, is there, is there kind of a logical progression in these questions? What number of thing or things are in this image? What number of thing or things in general form are there in this, in this image? Like, could we say generally that there's triangle in this image generally, and then particularly or specifically, could we say that each of these separate triangles has different characteristics? And, and I think the point here is really, you know, kind of the way we speak about things, maybe. And, and, and I think maybe that's what Plato might be trying to demonstrate with, um, with Phaedrus. I mean, it's, it's a very powerful idea. How do we speak of things? And, and how do we get this, this idea, be, you know, the, the, the general idea across? And then how does each of us form specific ideas? It's a it's a powerful it's a powerful image uh, I, I think or a powerful idea you know that that we can go from general ideas to specific ideas and each of us you know 
call it our souls or our animating forces or whatever drives us, we can form this meaning. And, and so that's where I really wanted to maybe just leap off for today's discussion. You know, where, where do we start today's discussion? And so the purpose of this kind of little geometric exercise at the beginning was maybe just to, to remind us of that discussion that we had last time of the idea of general forms. So generally there's triangle, but specifically there's some differences. Um, and then, you know, as JK, you said, that gets us into the idea of maybe the many and the one. I just wanted to, you know, maybe launch from here into, into uh, the, the idea of the purpose of speech, which I think is maybe a good point that we could, you know, have a, some more detailed discussion today. But um, I just, uh, I'll start with, you know, the one uh, point that Plato makes at a particular section um, by just introducing an idea that, uh, a quote that I heard the other day when I attended a uh, Center for Humane Technology uh, online presentation and the speaker quoted um, a sentence from the Federalist Papers. This was actually from Federalist Paper number 55, written by either James Madison or Alexander Hamilton. They're not sure. Uh, but these were kind of the founding documents of U.S. democracy. And so, uh, you know, back in that time, writers, you know, and, and certainly the, the founding fathers of the U.S. were well steeped in philosophy. And so uh, there's actually some interesting philosophy expressed in this, but it, it actually relates very much to the, the purpose of speech, which I thought we could maybe just start talking about specifically today. And the quote that I, I heard in this uh, presentation the other day um, was from Federalist Paper number 55, and it goes, in all very numerous assemblies of whatever characters composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob. So this was uh, either James Madison or Alexander Hamilton writing in the Federalist Papers. And so um, what I think what they conveyed, and maybe they, don't, they didn't fully appreciate the character, the, the, the truly rational character of Socrates, who would never perhaps be uh, allow, uh, you know, reason to be uh, uh, taken away from him. But what I think this, this little quote does is actually presents the real power of speech. And so I'm just wondering what people think about the power of speech, and in particular, um, the statement that uh, uh, that Socrates makes at uh, it's at 271d in Phaedrus. Um, he says, "Since the nature of speech is, in fact, to direct the soul, whoever intends to be a rhetorician must know how many kinds of soul there are." And so maybe I just you know, start the discussion by saying, is the nature of speech in fact to direct the soul, as Socrates is saying, and how is the soul directed if, if it's not by speech? Are there other ways in which the soul is directed? And maybe just draw from your own personal experience or experience that you observe. You know, what do you think of this, this role of speech, the purpose of speech and the power of speech? Um, so just wondering if there's any thoughts on that, you know, with the, do you, can you think of anything other than speech that, that directs the soul? And is this idea of direction important? What, what do we do with this direction? Is there, 
is there direction in physical objects, for example? And, and is the direction of physical objects different from the metaphysical soul kind of idea? JK, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, like, um, you know, uh, he's talking about, uh, you know, speech um, rhetoric as a as a form of uh, as a form of uh, a rationality, right? And um, but you know, realistically, there there are things, you know, powers in nature itself that could be, you know. Like you mentioned, passions and so forth, um, but those are those are natural forces, right? That we uh, we try to uh, control, but um, you know, in the end, you know, I don't know who, you know, who's 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 gonna, you know, uh, you know, went went out uh, our our reason, our human reason, or or uh, nature's. Uh, uh, passions or or forces that are maybe you know directing us mm -hmm. and, uh, behind the scenes, but uh, I you know he I, I think uh, of course Plato's view is that you know for us you know he believes that reason our soul you know is is or should or you know is or should be in uh, the one in control, and he. And for him, the the natural passions and so forth are illusions, and maybe they they are the ones that uh, <clears throat> those forces are can be can be controlled or held back uh, by reason. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's uh, you know that's so raised the question of whether who who's who's uh, who who's more um, more more in control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, is the soul the driver? You know, and and. You know that image that uh, that Plato brought in the first part of the the Phaedrus of the soul being like the charioteer, and the chariots being pulled by two horses. One is good, one is bad, and the horses are at kind of cross purposes. And then this, the soul is stuck here in the middle, trying to direct and and bring everything into. You know, and I'll just return to that quote that I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago from two forty nine C about this process of bringing everything into a reasoned unity. Uh, and maybe that's kind of this idea of the soul is that that unifying force that, that brings all of this outside information into a reasoned unity. And, you know, again, looking at this triangle image on the screen, you know, is there a reasoned unity to this image? And does that reason then expand out into the three dimensional tetrahedron that I have on my screen background? Um, so good ideas. Yeah. Uh, Jane, what are your thoughts? Or on, on speech. I was thinking about power of speech, but also at the same time, fallibility of speech. So when I think of speech, I think it, it's, it does have a dysfunction similar to something that uh, our, in our psyche, the uh, reason has. So speech is a guiding light. I think reason is a guiding light. So earlier I also mentioned when it comes to knowledge, there is a you 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 introduced the word implicit knowledge versus explicit knowledge. So reason and speech to me it seems like it gives us this guiding light to explicit explicit knowledge, which is as a human being, it's a special gift from God, maybe, and 
special tool that we have as a human animal. But it's not just so I can think of uh, speech and reason as some kind of a thoughts, thoughts in the space compared to, you know, between dots, we as a human beings, we think of pattern. And so we cannot help but cross the dots because just dots is meaningless. So we, I think, in a way, automatically just cross dots. And then that's how we build our worldview. And we do that with emotion, guide of emotion. So there is a guide of speech and reason, but also there is the other force that is like a tutorial, so to speak. There is a guide of passion and pathos and stuff like that, which we can see and we can point and we can name those reason and, 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 and dots. But the problem with the passion and the in-betweens is that we just cannot point at it. We can cross it. We can somehow see it with uh, maybe closed eyes, so to speak. But we cannot really communicate it in a, in a clear linguistic way. So those two forces also, you know, always kind of dance together in a way that some people sometimes fight with what exists versus what does not exist because we cannot see that does not exist. So I think both has this guiding power toward us. And that's where this uh, one and many, one and the many, and also the unity versus diversity. And art is also, it's, it's all about unity, but we have to have a diversity to, to, to be able to recognize the unity and also individual versus collective. Individual came out of collective, but still we are living as a one person. I am, my name is Jean. Your name is James. Those parts but without collective there's no part so all these two forces always uh, interact with each other they both have a uh, guiding power in in a different flavor I, I really like gene the way you you use the um that that phrase reason is a guiding light and a special tool that really resonates in me you know then and i think i think that's a lot of what you know, Plato and other philosophers are are trying to say is um, it's a really uh, and and so the way that you put it, I think, is very powerful. And this idea that passion is not controllable, I, th I think, you know, you mentioned reason is connecting the the dots, whereas there are no such connections available with the passions. And and I think that's maybe what the writers of the Federalist paper were trying to say is that passion gets out of control. You know, when you when you put a bunch of people together and people start speaking we forget and we let passion uh reign supreme when it shouldn't and we we forget our capacity of reason sometimes so thank you 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 really gave us a lot to think about in in what you just said gene um greg i know you were trying to raise your your hand i don't know if the raise hands feature is working yet or not for you but if you'd like to speak greg uh, jump in okay i was the one i'll try to find out uh, the, the the hand raising thing, but uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I, for the moment, I, I found this particular time I don't have. But anyway, if I would jump in, I would jump in. Thank you for the offering. Yeah. Um, okay. And then I, I just uh, I noticed that uh, uh, I, I, it's hard for me to follow actually the the chat screen as I'm moderating the discussion. But I just I noticed that that James had a, a point that uh, he posted in the chat screen about. Dreams may be 
guiding the, the soul. And so maybe we can talk about that uh, in in terms of and maybe other examples of uh, of things that uh, may guide the soul as well. Um, I have Reggie with a hand up. Reggie. Yes. Hi. Yeah. A very interesting discussion. Um, I I um, was thinking that um, the logos, the word, um, the word of God, uh, and and if you're divine, I think we're all part of the soul, part of the universe, part of God, and um, everything. Uh, the word is just a vibration, uh, from my understanding, and passion is a vibration. And as long as you, these vibrations are in harmony with nature and that harmony doesn't harm anyone. It doesn't, um, you know, you're, 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 it seems like a lot of people use that passion and they think they're above God, above nature, and they, they seem to do destruction and a lot of disharmony. So my concept is again, to, to, to try to live within nature in that harmonious state to um, not to hurt animals, not to hurt trees, or I guess it's a more of a Buddhist thing, uh, you know what I mean, to do no harm. So it, there's a there's deeper understanding of this, and it, it, it's a philosophy of, of um, blissfulness, I guess. Because when you think this way, you're, you're, you can um, give uh, a lot more, um, use your passion for constructive things, not to hurt one another. So just thoughts that came in my mind. Thank you. And they're great thoughts. And, and thank you, Reggie, for, for joining us. Welcome. Uh, you know, I, you, I mean, wow, that vibrations in harmony. I, I love that. It's uh, and I was just looking actually, as you said that the, there is actually a point in the Pedras dialogue in our, in the second part of the reading uh, that we're doing today that actually talks about harmony. I'll, I'll put my finger on it and come back to it because you, you raised a really important point there that this idea of harmony and harmonizing things. And maybe that kind of relates a little bit to what Jean just said in terms of connecting the points, right? Like you, you need to connect, if you're connecting points using some sort of reason, connecting them into a reasoned unity, then reason seems to demand some sort of harmony maybe. Uh, and then that gets us back to the question that we started with, what directs us in this process of reasoning? What directs the soul? So, you know, the idea of speech directing the soul, uh, the idea that James uh, mentioned in the chat about maybe dreams directing the soul, you know, is there a difference between dreams and speech? What are dreams based on? Are dreams based on speech? Um, lots, lots of things that we can explore here. So I've got... Um, I've got, uh, well, Joel, I see your hand up. We'll, we'll take you first, and then we'll go with JK. Joel? Is this the, uh, the other Joel or me? <laughs> you, you. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so with the, uh, the uh, question I had that has to do with language uh, or, or speech in, in the form of communication, I'd also like, um, I want to say um, on one hand, uh, the uh, our vocabulary and our language is also fundamental for us to communicate. But I'm also uh, wanting to point to so many other different methods of uh, not just communication, but we can we can understand ourselves in the place in the world through like body language, through art, through mu instrumental music. I forget what this uh, the psychological definition is. How how much of 
how much of communication be between one person to another is is just it's nonverbal. It's just through you know uh, looking in someone's eyes, body language. There's so much about communication that I would like to I'd like to think that has nothing to do with language itself is so much of it is intuitive, so to speak, right? But I can think of so many different ways of communication without having to say anything in a lot of ways. So hold on. Well, it's a a question I think that we should consider here is it and maybe pretty fundamental to the ideas that Plato is trying to get across in in Phaedrus is, and maybe if I could put what you said in a little bit of a different um, light in, in understanding what you said about art, you know, being one form of expression, physical expression, uh, artistic expression, written expression, which we'll, we'll deal with that famous Thoth uh, legend that Plato puts in the Phaedrus shortly. Um, but I'm wondering without speech, would we be able to understand the meaning or would we able to, would we be able to form meaning of you know, images if we didn't have speech. So say we lived in a world, I'm just imagining a world where, um, you know, Da Vinci drew the Mona Lisa or painted the Mona Lisa, and but none of us spoke. None of us had the capacity of speaking. So this character comes along, name is Da Vinci, paints the Mona Lisa, and we would all look at the Mona Lisa, but we would never be able to speak to each other. And how would we derive any sort of meaning from that? I'm just wondering, you know, just, it's a bit of a thought experiment, but you know, is, is speech, is, is having this kind of back and forth exchange, maybe the only way that we can find meaning. Um, so thoughts on that, you know, based on your own experience and observed experience, what do people think? Um, JK and then Jane. You you are include mathematics as a, also a form of speech or yeah it's maybe or or a form of expression certainly expression. Um, yeah a form of expression and you know maybe so, we can take we, we can maybe take it back to the question that Joel asked at the the last uh, uh, episode as well as you know is there a difference between teaching mathematics and doing mathematics as a science uh, so I'll just throw that in but J K continue yeah so you're talking about uh, Da Vinci, and uh, is an art also a form of expression? Mm. Of um, it's a kind of a representation that that uh, that uh, uh, we rely on, mm-hmm. and then is expressed in a in a work of art. Uh, so language is kind of is a is a kind of exp- uh, representation, isn't it? It's a it's it's a um, we rely on certain symbols and uh, to uh, to put together these various symbols to to express, so yeah, so I, I wanted to touch on the idea of uh, of uh, you know speech and um, and these kind of representations um, in terms of uh, a rational you know um, understanding of control you know control and and building a framework a system that is. Um, that we can rely on for that kind of control, and so basically, it's really control of of the uh, you know what is unpredictable in nature itself, you know, and because there are all these forces that are trying to gain control of us, and and someone mentioned mentioned uh, the dreams, right? Dreams, 
and that that is in the unconscious. And so there are these unconscious, you know, forces and symbols and so forth that are there. And so it seems that Plato was maybe right about that. Maybe these kind of forms are already there in us that we just don't know about. But for him, the forms are rational. In, in our modern day, we have the, uh, the notion of collective unconscious, you know, in depth psychology of Jung and, and uh, Joseph Campbell. And so, so these kinds of, you know, <clears throat> forces from the unconscious, you know, are not necessarily maybe, I don't know, they're, they're, could, could they be also ra rational? There is some rationality to them, but uh, but they're mixing with the other, you know, with the passions and so forth that that could also, you know, uh, affect us and influence us. So, like the person who's a chariot, you know, <clears throat> it may not be uh, in control as much control as he thinks he is. But uh, you know, uh, if you believe in rationality, then maybe uh, you know. You you can you know overcome all the forces of nature, and I guess science is you know going that along that path of um, trying to control you know everything. Uh, <clears throat> so what was it? Gudel's uh, notion that you can't have a complete system and be consistent, right? But I mean you know we're I guess we're always trying to right. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I like the way that you um, phrase that controlling what is unpredictable in nature, and then you ended by talking about Gödel's incompleteness theorems and uh, the idea that you know is it's it, there is this incompleteness maybe in the universe, and maybe that's what Gödel's mathematical conclusion led to. And certainly, what we know, and I've spoken before about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which gov governs physics, and so physics is inherently um, unpredictable. And I think we've talked before about how that's actually probably a good thing for us because otherwise life might be pretty static and predictable um, and uninteresting as a result. But so now we have this, this interesting intersection of rational and irrational, commensurable and incommensurable in, in our lives. And, you know, it's the, the soul's challenge and maybe joy at the same time of trying to figure all of this out. Um, so in terms of figuring it out, Jane, what do you think? Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, my computer stopped working, so I had to connect yeah. via phone. So I just want to be sure that everything's working. Um, yeah. Okay, so a lot of great things were said, and I want to um, address a couple of the uh, couple of points that were mentioned. Um, first of all, I think, James, you mentioned this about the uh, uh, individual and society. I recently attended a couple of um, great meetups, and when I really gave it some thought, I think I came to realize that I can't imagine if we like like move from the realm of like pure theory into trying to imagine what it would look like practically. I can't imagine an individual actually surviving in any way or form without a society. And even if a person was able to, when I say individual, I mean someone who has both a soul and uh, like a physical body. So if they were able to survive for a very long time without any other individuals, without any other society, I think that that individual would stop being an individual and turn into something else. And that the concept of an individual only has sense 
meaning and definition only within the society. So I would imagine that definitely speech is a very important part of that. It is, I guess, one of the things that makes us human. I mean, animals do, they do communicate as well. And they, we, we could technically call it, I guess, a sort of form of speech, but it's, it's not, it's definitely not the same thing as, as a human being. And someone else mentioned, like, when we communicate with someone, it's, it's not, it's definitely not only about the verbal. And um, if we look into communication theory, there's actually, there's a ratio of 40 to 60, but I always, I, I don't remember, like, 40 to 60, one's like verbal signs, the other one is nonverbal. So basically, we could say half of the things that we're um, sort of half of the information that we're getting from our from the person we're speaking to is actually not just speech. It's like a lot of the other things. A lot of it is like maybe some conscious, maybe it's like um, the tone of the voice or like what what the person's doing, how they're sitting. And, and there's like, it's it's a whole lot of things, but speech definitely plays a part in that. And in terms of what directs the soul, um, I find that the subconscious is a very interesting thing. And I, I think that's, um, if we're talking about like Plato and Socrates, for Socrates, I think that was his daemon, I believe it, 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 it's called, like this this thing that would tell him, well, it never told him what to do, but it told him what never to do. And I always interpret that as some form of like subconsciousness that sort of comes on to Socrates and, and he sort of decides what not to do based on based on what what he's he's hearing or seeing in this in this like spirit type of thing and per, like personally in my life I've, I've realized that a lot of the things come from this sort of unknown source and these decisions can be totally irrational based on what I know but if I go with with that um with that thing that I got I, I usually end up making the best choice which has been really weird and it's 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 weird to say, but a lot of the more important decisions I've made I've made based on irrational grounds, and it has turned out better than the ones that I took going against those those I don't I don't know if it's like feelings or anything, but like those sort of I guess subconscious decisions that come upon me, and I don't view that as some, as something supernatural. I think that there is just um, especially nowadays, there's so much information, so much stuff going on. There's no way the conscious could ever uh, comprehend all of it. So we have the subconscious, which does a lot of it. It's just that we're maybe not intact with it. Why that is, um, I'm not sure. But um, anyway, I I'm going to try to wrap it up. And the last thing I'd like to say is if we're looking at that, I guess, sort of dichotomy of like the infinite and the finite, what is and what is becoming, um, I, I view speech as something that is becoming, that is a sort of kind of like a shadow of the ideas, which are what is, what is infinite. Well, that that's at least the way that I interpret it within like the, the world of Plato, I guess. Um, that's up. Oh, and the last thing that I wanted to say is someone was mentioning harmony and destruction as something that are things that are not able to come together so they're kind of like opposites I guess in a way but I view actually some forms of destructions as a part of harmony if that makes any sense so basically we're we're destroying all the time it, it could actually be productive destruction for example when we're like destroying I don't know um and like in the sense of like I don't know politics we're destroying one political system so a new one is reborn and sort of 
if we look at nature, destruction and 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 actually violence and and suffering, it's all part of nature. So when we're saying to live in harmony with nature, that that harmony, at least to me, it still like entitles, um, in, encompasses sort of both destruction and and violence because we see that in nature all the time. Um, and so yeah, that's all I wanted to add. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. And uh, you know, I, the way that you um, talked about the individual having the definition only in the context of society really made me think. Uh, and you raised so many good points in in what you said that uh, uh, I think we need to explore that and to understand. You know, again, I'm just thinking back. You know, if I if I were to see Da Vinci's painting of the Mona Lisa, but I was un incapable of speech and so that there was no communication channels between me and any of the other 7.8 billion people on this planet. None of us could speak to each other. Um, yeah, we would have lots of forms of expression. We would have art, we would have mathematics, we would have all of this. Maybe the expression would be extremely limited because we were not able to speak to each other, but we could still have forms of expression. But, you know, would we have meaning? You know, and I think you, you talked about this individual has definition and maybe we could say individual has meaning in the context of society and and you know how to what, what what's the communication channel that establishes that meaning you know is it just simply the expression or is it talking about the expression um and maybe that's a that's a point that you know that, that plato's trying to make in that opening uh line again that we're that we started looking at today at 271d that you know the nature of speech is in fact to direct the soul which is what socrates is saying um you know is it directing with meaning maybe is what he's trying to imply here uh i don't know um hey james so let's explore that yeah My, uh, james yeah uh you have to excuse me i can't use the raise hand button because oh, I'm yeah, by means, i know we have raised hands but yeah. i'd like to just quickly share on why i work with children i just wanted to share all these cute triangles that i just made right now so even not about we don't even have to start talking about the speech yet but we are not sure if we see or think the same thing while we are looking at the pictures. So not about the verbs yet. So this, these are all triangles and they all look, look different. And we don't know. I don't know which one you see. And you don't know which ones I see, but they are all different versions of the same shape. So we are not even sure of the shapes that we think we see. So the words are just another thing. I, I just wanted to uh, bring that. And thank you. Yeah. Hey, James, well, thank you. can thank I, you, can, James, can I jump in here? I can't raise the hand either. Oh, yes. Sorry, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, I just, take, uh, let, let's take Greg and then we've got a few people with their hands up. So Greg. Okay, a lot's being said, and I just come back to what uh, you know. Uh, Regina was uh, he pointed out uh, the word uh, logos, and uh, and the logos really is uh, is uh, you know I did some tracing back in terms of the etymology of of logos lately, uh, and then, and then I can even look into the the original text, uh, Greek text of Plato's dialogues, and uh, find that. 
that in Plato, the original word, the Greek word for law, uh, for reason was logos. The logos was a reason. But then logos as a word, you know, at the homo's time was just a speech. So, so the very, the very word of a speech and the logos, they are, they are the same word at some point in the Greek, but that diverged later on. At the Plato's time, the word actually mean reason. But at Homer's time, uh, the, the concept of reason did not exist. Logos was just a speech. And, 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 and in context, so we talk about, I think that what, what happened is that Logos was remain as a speech in common people. But the philosophers also use logos to mean reason. And the beginning of that was, uh, I think it, it was Heraclitus. Uh, uh, he first you know, used logos to mean some kind of uh, word order. And from that point, the, the, law, the, the order, logic, the reason started service. And by the Plato's time, and the philosopher come to use logos as, as a reason. And I find that, that if we consider speech as a general thing, that it's, uh, uh, it, if it, because everything goes with speech. Reason is a part of speech too. So there is a kind of a more, less irrational speech and a more rational speech. The rational speech goes more sort of logic of things, but the irrational speech is emotional, subconscious, everything in between. I think when we talk to speech, it's a, it, it encompasses all these elements of irrationality and rationality, and that rationality is naturally embedded in the speech. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I find that the word logos really uh, has a lot of uh, very rich uh, meaning and uh, and its history as well. So anyway, yeah, yeah thank you. Uh... Greg and, and um, yeah, sorry the the hand raise isn't working for you, but whenever you feel like speaking, Greg, just just let me know and certainly uh, let you in. So we'll. Uh, but and, and you you really made me think actually there with that, uh, you know that that because we talked last time about how you translate words and the translation is according to meaning. So one translation of logos might mean a specific thing now, but I, I think you pointed out a very important thing, which is perhaps the original meaning of Logos and this idea of reason. And again, this idea in the first part of Phaedrus of bringing things into a reasoned unity is maybe one of the tasks, uh, one of the challenges, but maybe also one of the joys of the soul. And then thinking also, again, back to Timaeus 28a, is uh, that the way that you comprehend uh, that which always is but never becomes is through a reasoned account. And so maybe it's in finding those reasons that um, that that's really an important part of speech is to to find the reasons. And you made me think actually. Just I don't know what it, it was something in, in what you said that made me think of what I've been trying to express for I think the past hour or so is this idea that maybe speech is a is a two way communication channel. So maybe this difference between expression. Um, you know, uh, James mentioned in his chat post. You know about dream dreams being an expression. Uh, somebody else mentioned about mathematics being a form of expression. Somebody else mentioned art being a form of expression. So we have all of these expressions, but are they one-way expressions? And then is speech a two-way expression channel? And maybe that's a fundamental difference. So I just thought I would throw that out when the thought occurred to me. Um, 
We'll go to Reggie and then to Joel. Reggie? Yeah, it's very intriguing conversation. Um, I look at it all at, at a whole, like, like the logos would be, uh, it's just a word. And word is obviously has, is a vibration. But uh, you got to remember, there's languages of imagery, which is dreams, imagery in terms of expressions, uh, language of emotions. I mean, it, 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 just imagine if we couldn't actually say words, we could still communicate with each other or deaf people can communicate with each other with sign language. So language of that. And the higher vibrations would be probably language of light. Um, there's information obviously going through like uh, uh, fiber optics, tons of information. And we're, we're communicating with imageries of, of uh, computer uh, science, uh, the, the actual screen. And so that's imagery, language of imagery. Um, all this probably, again, you want to, if I were to be screaming here, it would be very disharmonious, but you want all this type of, of vibrations, this electrical signals that, that, that are going around to be, because uh, if they're not in harmony, because that's my big word today, I don't know why I'm stuck on harmony, but if they're not in harmony, people get repelled, people push off. And basically we're conditioned to be in harmony and then we are conditioned also to say, it's okay to hurt one another, okay to go to war, okay to uh, do whatever we do to animals. And you get into a higher philosophy of thinking in terms of, because we were raised with a certain imagery, certain vibration, certain language. It, it's hard to reevaluate it all once you've been conditioned into this reasoning of, and then once you, a big part of this is meditation you let a lot of this go and rethink it all, which is very difficult in today's world with, with so much information being uh, projected upon us. And then obviously when we dream, a lot of that is reflected through our dreams. What we see visually, we actually, when we sleep at night and close our eyes or even meditate, uh, we reflect all that. It's hard to, through the meditation, to let things go like that, to let um, all this, uh, they call it the monkey mind or the, the, the crazy mind and to, to, to calm it down, to listen to the peaceful things in the world, to listen to the nature, to listen to the trees, to listen, to look at each other, not say anything and, and to express that oneness, that happiness, that love that's so missed in, the, in this world today. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, you, uh, I mean, I think actually what you said about, you know, kind of, going into the mind and finding, um, you know, these potentially greater truths uh, leads well into the kind of first reading that I wanted to do today. And that was that legend of Thamus and Thoth and, uh, um, you know, being able to establish your own meaning uh, in things, I think is one of a very important message in, in this dialogue of Plato's. You mentioned harmony and here it is right on the screen in front of you. That, that's the section so Eva, if you would just drop the, the, the um, just there's a line or two above this, uh, actually just go back up to the triangle, the first page there, Eva. And it's actually right at the top. There's the reading actually that mentions harmony and there it was right on the screen. So um, maybe I'll just quickly read this. It's from 268 E, e in Phaedrus. And uh, it's, um, uh, 
they would react more like a musician confronted by a man who thought he had mastered harmony because he was able to produce the highest and lowest notes on his strings. A musician would not say fiercely, you stupid man, you are out of your mind. As befits his calling, he would speak more gently, my friend. Though that too is necessary for understanding harmony, someone who has gotten as far as you as far as you have, may still know absolutely nothing about the subject. What you know is what it's necessary to learn before you study harmony, but not harmony itself. Um, and, you know, the idea of harmony here, you, the, the contrast is being made between the person who knows the upper and lower limits of a musical skill, uh, but not how to bring everything in between together. And, I, and actually what you just said, Reggie, about harmony, just... Uh, here it was right on the screen. I just thought I would read that because I think it's so important. That idea of, you know, notwithstanding that there are limits, we need to do, we need to know what's between the limits and how to make meaning and sense out of them. So that's, I, I just wanted to bring that reading in because you mentioned harmony again. Uh, we'll go to Joel and then Jean and JK. Joel. All right. Yes, please. So I want to dive right into that. Uh, um, Thought experiment, James, you used about uh, the Da Vinci uh, painting and if everybody was like deaf and mute and couldn't be able to speak whatsoever, would they? Would we still be able to derive meaning from a painting? And I would actually like to argue absolutely. Like if like I woke up deaf and mute, of course that would be horrible, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, take from that, okay, everything else as far as experience goes is meaningless. I would, I would take the further step in saying if, um, I would render speech completely useless altogether if it wasn't justified through actions. Like imagine if you and I had no idea what dancing was and we couldn't dance and I tried to describe to you what dancing was like, but I didn't show you what it was and you never saw it. It would be, it would be completely meaningless to you. Like I, uh, I like I, I would argue that some of the most powerful experiences I've 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 experienced in my whole life um, were were just speechless moments, breathtaking. Like I, I tried to describe to you like the very first sunset and sunrise I saw in Hawaii for the first time. Like that, just describing that to you in words for whatever reason tarnishes the memory. It's like it's just something that I just words don't do it justice whatsoever. So. Um, yeah, like I, I would argue speech is the most useful way. It has the most utility of, uh, of being able to get you to relate to what I'm feeling or what I've experienced. But if it's not backed up by actions, then I would render speech useless altogether. Um, uh, there was something else that I wanted to say, but I can't remember it. But yeah, I, I, I love the Da Vinci painting part. Thank you, and, and I think it's a thought experiment that we can continue to explore. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of, you know, if, if you didn't speak and you couldn't hear, it, it doesn't, what I'm not trying to say is that that would invalidate the experience, but I'm, I think maybe, maybe it's the lack of a two-way communication channel that would kind of reduce the experience, maybe. <laughs> Um, is that we're not able to trade ideas, for example, on, you know, what's the emotion on her face in that painting and what does it represent and what are all of the possible things that it could represent? Because each one of us, uh, and I think it was Jane who said in, uh, earlier that each individual is part of the greater whole of society and it's that being part of that greater whole 
that maybe renders meaning to the individual. And so, you know, because my experiences in life are very limited, you know, in the context of the experiences of 7.8 billion people on this planet, you know, my experiences are naturally only limited by where I can go and how much I can do during my waking hours. Uh, but when we all start trading these experiences through speech in this two-way communication channel, uh, it kind of broadens the, the the depth of the the meaning. And so maybe there's something to be said there. I don't know. But uh, let's see what others think. Uh, Jean, I see your hand up and then JK. Jean? Yes, I totally agree with what Joel said, but I want so, but I want to say add the other half of it, which may sound like I'm totally disagreeing with Joel, but it's just the other half of the story. So going back to Mona Lisa picture, I think without speech, and I'm not talking about just the communication of all sorts of uh, uh, forms and I am talking about human language and human speech. So I'll just use the word speech. Without speech and human interaction of a speech act, I don't think Mona Lisa picture is even possible to begin with. I think it, because we have a speech, I think the picture and meaning exists or it is possible because we're just forged out of the society. So it feels like we have individual, we have self, but I think that it's built out of this, this, this sense of self, sense of meaning, sense of what I am, sense of what you mean and what the other person mean it all. I think it is built entirely or at least partly because of the speech, human language and speech. So you are built now. And that's how it can even, we can even, even talk about this kind of pictures because going back to uh, soul as a public thing, there is still, there is this, this, this resonance with me to where I think there is something to where two-way interaction, two-way or even multiple, multiple people, or I'm not just expressing one thing, but also immediate feedback of the other person's speech back, facial expression, and together there is some kind of a synergy building and some kind of a swirling happening and momentum happening. And then that happening gets faster and faster and more, 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 more people join in where there is this, this, this emergence of some incredible thing that other animals could not have because they didn't have the human language, they didn't have the human speech. I'm not saying that it is inferior, superior, I'm just saying that it is just human specific thing that we have this speech and we have this incredible social co-operation, uh, co co-understanding. And I think in a way it's even a building block of a human consciousness. Other animals probably have consciousness to a certain level, but because we have this damn thing called speech, I think our consciousness is just the building block we just hit the hit the lottery of a building block of all this consciousness thing to where it became the synergy and it became this way. And then from, you know, 10,000 years ago, writing started and we have this, this accumulation of this consciousness and this two-way, multiple way, not just multiple people at the same uh, synchronistic same time, but even we can, we can, we can, we can uh, accumulate from thousands of years ago. 
software. Now we don't even know what to do with all this information. So this uh, two-way, multiple-way accumulation, all this speech and information, I think that's that actually have built who we are and what meaning is, and then this meaning is become has become such a uh, such an essence of human existence. Thank you. And can I jog, jump in here? Yeah, Greg, go ahead. Um, yeah, this uh, you know the speech and then early on, Joe, regarding you know the 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 imagery and then you know the action and uh, and then and the speech. I think. Uh, there's something to do with uh, the the essence of this speech at the end of the day is uh, in the concepts and uh, and then the concepts uh, imagery uh, come back to your your diagram here uh, regarding the you know the how many four or how many triangles there like a general and then particular it really come down to general and particular and we have a particular concepts which we say the sunset that sunset you know, and then the you know the the general concept of sunset. So 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 we we I think we we need both in order to know and understand, and that's why we differentiate from animal. Without those concepts, we're just animal. But we have a concepts. This this picture in its meaning are enhanced. I think that that this this picture or imagery or whatever uh, do have a meaning to to animal. They they have a cognition, but they don't have a concepts. We only human have, and because of the concepts, and depends on the, the richness of concepts, and depends on how they are related with the concepts, that adds the rich meaning to 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 our human life. So at the end of the day, I think there's the general and the particulars. The particulars are particular sunset, that imagery, that 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 the thing we feel and touch every day. But from that, we arise to to the general form, which is concept, and the two are connected. And they interact in initial way and gradually enrich our understanding and appreciation of what we have. Well, thank you, Greg. And I think both both you, Greg, and Jean, who spoke before, I think really made a good combination together because what I got from Jean was this idea of um, this this idea of contrasts and synergy. Jean used that word synergy. Um, the idea of these contrasts and synergy coming together to form meaning within the whole. So the individual, one individual contrasting and, and having synergy with another individual makes that kind of whole construction of meaning. And meaning is constructed maybe at a society level rather than a individual level, or at least it's transmitted at a, at a society rather than an individual level. And then it made me think of, again, what Reggie was saying about vibration um you know this idea of having synergy and you know my if 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 i think of myself as a vibration um am i vibrating at the same uh frequency as you or in the differences of our frequencies as we each vibrate a little bit differently do we find some sort of meaningful contrast in that um a very very interesting kind of uh, uh idea there that uh, that we can maybe explore um the, um, I just wanted to raise a point too. Again, going back to 249C that we discussed two weeks ago in that first part of, uh, or the end of the first part of Phaedrus, uh, this idea that uh, um, the the idea of the soul recollecting the things that it saw when it was traveling with God, when it disregarded the things we now call real, 
and lifted it up its head to see what is truly real instead. So those those words, and we didn't get to discuss that last time, but this difference between real and truly real, you know, and, and so maybe, Greg, what you just said about the particulars, uh, the, the particular specifics um, that we each have to deal with in our daily lives, those are real, maybe to us, but what is truly real is truly real the kind of general form of all of those specific things. So if we were to, if we were to follow back all of those specific things that we deal with in our daily lives, what general forms or general ideas uh, could we tie them back to? You know, this idea or this 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 concept idea that you brought forth, Greg, I think is is very important. You know, is is language what gives us the ability to deal with concepts as opposed to these, you know, particulars, uh, but gives us the idea, the, the ability to deal with general concepts. So I like that. Thank you both very much for, for uh, building on each other's comments there. Uh, we'll go to JK. Yeah. <clears throat> I just want to, yeah, I know. Um, take the idea of uh, this concept that you're talking about is, uh, which is what language is. And language is a, is a kind of like, um, uh, you know, a system for learning how to abstract, you know, from the concrete. And that's how the language comes about is this kind of a public uh, sharing of these uh, abstractions. And that kind of, uh, you know, abstraction is of course sort of uh, uh, what gives us meaning, a sense of meaning. Uh, the, you know, the ultimate kind of meaning would be, uh, you know, Socrates and Plato's idea of the soul, uh, and that that comes about by this, you know, uh, the practice of um, you know creating these uh, you know super abstractions of of uh, you know who we are and so forth, and and, and what never changes, and what what is being, and and what is the one. And the same, what is a one and the same? So it's it's really how they use the language, you know, to derive meaning. And whereas at that time, uh, before maybe a little bit before, uh, it was Heraclitus who who emphasized not the not the meaning of uh, not not that kind of meaning of how things, you know, um, you know, that, that the, the sameness or the the oneness or. Oh, he also talked about the oneness, but the but the idea of um, that of change, that, that things that are different, constantly being different, and um, and for him, the uh, the understanding of logos was more how it was originally you know uh, understood, and uh, so logos for Heraclitus, you know, meant uh, you know um, the, the that uh, the understanding of how things change and they're not the same. And and it, the sense of oneness is the oneness of of uh, of, of uh, being and becoming. And so, Plato maybe maybe emphasized the uh, the idea of the of the oneness uh, as as a being that does not change, the sameness. And for him, that that's what meaning is or was, right? And in our present day, you know, we have all kinds of different philosophers that came to the idea of understanding language as how you use it, right? Well, one way or the other. And how the pe uh, people in the public, uh, you know, share this kind of uh, understanding of language uh, 
and its meaning by by the custom or use of the of the different uh, terms in the lang in language. So it really comes down to how you use it and whether you emphasize the uh, the being or the becoming. You know, and um, maybe there are some you know there are some philosophers that are able to to understand uh, meaning ultimately as the uh, process of being and, and becoming, which is, I think that's, you know, philosophy always, is always trying to come to, I think, uh, to incorporate uh, these two divergent uh, senses of, uh, of, uh, of what life, you know, is, right? Being, uh, being and, and becoming. You know, things change, and also they, they, uh, they in some sense remain the same. And and uh, so I, I think that was so language and meaning is are they kind of go go together, and depends on how you use it. Well, that, that's great, and in the you know again that brings us back to the point that we talked about in the last episode about meaning being derived in use, uh, and I like you know the, the kind of melding together of being and becoming that you use because it goes back to what one of the participants said at the beginning of this episode which was or the question that was asked at the beginning of this episode which was you know did the ancient Greeks use the word infinity but maybe you know maybe they used it in the context of being at least what you just uh, the way that you just described being as the, you know, the, the kind of eternal is and if I think back again to Timaeus 28a uh, maybe being is that which always is but never becomes, and that's in contrast to that which always becomes but never is. And so maybe that part about the, that which always is but never becomes is really you know, equivalent to infinity. Um, can I can I add yeah. something here? Yeah. Isn't it about like what we master as group of people, the language and communication? Like a year ago. This online communication was like, uh, look at us, we're all masters on online communication. And we all had to go through with that as the whole world who can use internet at least. So I think that shows a big thing. And I'm just, because I work with teenagers and children, I am just trying, I'm so curious to see maybe 10 years after now, the kids who were babies who are born this year, how will they see communication? How will they communicate? Many of us, we never met in face. And we we know, like I, I Jane Wiley were talking about, like, you know, sometimes you feel like uh, what's in you, what is like what was not taught to you, but what is speaking, some something speaking in you sounds right, more makes more sense than the things that you learn, maybe virtue. And I'm now curious, like just like we are connecting with in a wireless or like internet connection, I'm wondering if is there a way that our virtues or our souls could be connecting too. And maybe if we master this, could we, could we communicate without any devices? Uh, I mean, how, how can that, uh, how can we use that? And I know it's possible, but just we don't know about it or we, are, we were not trained into it. We're not used to it. 
So before before writing was uh, or publishing was this active or this much used in the past, like people would just memorize the things they heard right away. So I really can't understand that because I never experienced that. But now we are all like online. Uh, <laughs> we are all online people now. We know a lot about that. So I think that's experimental too. And it, certainly you, you raised the point about this being kind of a new type of communication channel, Eva. And, uh, you know, a little over a year ago, we were doing these meetings in person. We would each have to travel to a specified location at a specified time. We would go into a room, you know, have to locate a room to, to hold the event in. And then all of that changed. And then we formed this kind of new communication channel. But we're still using speech, you know, ultimately to understand each other. But, you know, how does how will this evolve over time? We don't know. But I think you raise a very important point too, also, Eva, in terms of the changes over time uh, in the way that we we use this two-way speech communication channel and the changes in meaning over time. And, and it's actually a good um, segue into the reading that I wanted to do. So maybe Eva would just ask you if you could put up the, the reading that's on the third page. Uh, it's labeled Roman numeral two. Um, and we can just we can, if I would have a volunteer maybe to, to read this, this is the, um, this is the, the legend of Thamus and Thoth um, from 275A to 275B uh, in Phaedrus. And, could I, uh, James, just, could I jump in? Before, yeah, sorry, yeah, go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I yeah. think it's uh, connected to the, to, the, to the comment that Eva just made. Yeah. I just got a thought. You know, uh, this, this change of communication and the internet age and the, in light of the, the thing called the memory. And I think indeed it's, it's fascinating that, that, that uh, in a way that the variety of ways we can communicate, but also I think it, very importantly is really this memory thing. I felt that so much information we have and, uh, you know, in the past we tried to rely on our heart of memory, but these days we, we, it's not necessary, but not, not, uh, also it's not possible. Not possible that just too, too much information, not necessary is that the tools that we have allow us to do that. It's at our fingertip. It's, our, it's almost like the cell phone and the internet. It's our extended memory. You know, it's just a little bit delay. But given what Elon Musk just did, he, he just made a speech, I think, uh, in uh, announcement saying that they succeed in direct communication between uh, like uh, electronic and the brain. And it's foreseeable in the, in the near future, indeed, that, uh, that uh, we, we not only have that direct extension of memory from our, whatever we think, whatever we remember, connected to a piece of computer. So everything that, that happened in the past will be instantly available to the brain. On the one hand, on the other hand, because it's a connected computer, therefore it's connected to all humanity. So, so there's a public soul is becoming a truly, truly a public soul that, that how many billion people we, we, we have that all the souls are connected to a single soul to be able to think at the same time. It's amazing. <laughs> just, a, just a soul occurred to me. I, I love what you just said, Greg, you know, and, and certainly what you said about the computer, the, the electronic uh, or the digital technology 
connecting us all and whether it's a direct you know neural link connection such as what elon musk is looking to establish or whether it's something else i think certainly you know i've spoken before about quantum computing and actually the diagram on my screen behind me which is the tetrahedron in a in a sphere uh is actually very similar has striking similar uh similarities to the uh outline of a qubit uh, the, the the quantum bit or called a qubit that will operate operate in superposition in a quantum computer. And this is something that I, you know, I've continued to follow this whole quantum computing development. And certainly when the quantum computer is introduced, there will be a vast proliferation, very fast and vast proliferation of information. And it's a question of, you know, is that information, what do we do with that information? What meaning do we make of that information? How do we want to communicate to each other how do we want to establish that how do we want to maintain that two-way communication channel when all of this information is coming at us and it makes me think of our episode on the mino where we talked about knowledge having to be tied down that was a point that that socrates made right at the end uh of the mino when he talked about the made the analogy to the statues of daedalus and the statues of daedalus look so lifelike and they could almost run away unless they're tied down and he, he equated that to to knowledge so how are how are we going to tie knowledge down in this kind of emerging reality that we're we're getting into and so i just wanted to introduce this reading and i don't know if i would have a volunteer i i called on joel before to to volunteer and i don't know if he's up for it if somebody else would would volunteer just while i i wait for a somebody to to come forward and volunteer i just wanted to introduce this particular reading with a point that uh, Socrates makes at 263a, right at the end of 263a, and Socrates says, and this is again this idea of the speech directing the soul that we started our discussion today with, um, so in the next sort of half hour that's remaining, I just wanted to kind of get into this idea of the difference between remembering and reminding, which you, you touched on, Greg, and so I wanted to introduce it with uh, this with what Socrates says at 263a, he says, but what happens when we say the word just or the word good? Doesn't each one of us go in a different direction? Don't we differ with, un with one another and even with ourselves? So what is our concept of just and of good uh, is what he's asking. Now, is this something that is written down somewhere in the universal record? Is there any, you know, single library that we can go to and open a book that says this forever for all times is justice, this forever and all times is goodness? Uh, if such a book exists, we haven't found it yet, right? So we continue to argue about the meaning of these things over time. And that relates, I think, to what Eva said about you know, kind of meaning shifting over time. And so I just wanted to, because I think that was a powerful point that Socrates makes at 263a. And it kind of leads into this part about um, this, this reading that I've got up here on the screen or that Eva's got up on the screen, uh, this distinction between remembering and reminding and the soul's inward journey. And it makes me think of the question that Joel G asked in the last episode, is there a distinction between a uh, teacher of mathematics and a um, and a scientist mathema mathematician um, and you know maybe that there's something in here that I kind of mentioned I think in our last episode that uh, may relate to the uh, to this distinction between remembering and, and reminding and so I'm just wondering if if someone would 
be kind enough to just read these two paragraphs on uh, the legend of uh, Thamus and Thoth. So uh, here uh, we have uh, Thamus is the king of Egypt, and Thoth is the Egyptian god of writing, measuring, and calculation. And so in this legend, uh, Plato's bringing uh, Thoth into the king's presence, and they're having a discussion. And so I'm just wondering if someone would be kind enough to read this for me. Joel, thank you. Now, it, I, I tried to eliminate the confusion by using Joe, but yeah. you do mean me, do you? I do, yes. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, okay, 275A to 275B. Uh, now, the king of all Egypt at that time was Thamus, who lived in the great city in the upper region that the Greeks called Egyptian Thebes. Thamus they call Amnon. Amnon. Thuth came to exhibit his arts to him and urged him to disseminate them to all the Egyptians. Thamus asked him about the usefulness of each art, and while Thuth was explaining it, Thamus praised him for whatever he thought was right in his explanations and criticized him for whatever he thought was wrong. The story goes that Thamus said much to Thuth, both for and against each art which it would take too long to repeat. But when they came to writing, Thuth said, O king, here is something that once learned will make the Egyptians wiser and will improve their memory. I have discovered a potion for memory and for wisdom. Thamus, however, replied, O most expert Thuth, one man can give birth to the elements of an art, but only another can judge how they benefit or harm those who will use them. And now, since you are the father of writing, your affection for it has made you describe its effect as the opposite of what they really are. In fact, it will introduce forgetfulness into the soul of those who learn it. They will not practice using their memory because they will put their trust in writing which is external and depends on signs that belong to others, instead of trying to remember from the inside completely on their own. You have not discovered a potion for remembering, but for reminding. You provide your students with the appearance of wisdom, but not with its reality. Your invention will enable them to hear many things without being properly taught, and they will imagine that they have come to know much while for the most part they will know nothing. And they will be difficult to get along with since they will merely appear to be wise instead of really being so. Thank you very much, Joel. That's uh, read with great meaning. Thank you. Uh, I think it really, it kind of really brings you into that room where, you know, where this legendary discussion between Thamus and Thoth is, is going on. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, what people think here about, you know, was Thamus wise in what he said? You know, I, I'm seeing some wisdom in it, but I, I don't know what, what others think here, you know, is, and, th and this goes to, you know, this, this general theme that goes through Plato's works about kind of maybe the dangers of writing sometimes, you know, writing is, is good. It's a form of expression. I don't think he's, he ever says you should never write. Uh, but I think he's placing the idea of, 
of this this dialectic or dialogue process as being really above the 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 process of writing and and he uses this distinction between remembering and reminding and maybe this takes us back to this idea of a general form of speech and what people think of this distinction between remembering and reminding whether it's in in that question that uh, Joel G asked last time you know is is the math teacher helping us to remember or is the math teacher helping us to rem helping to remind us? Um, and what's the difference between remembering and reminding? I, I think it's such a, a fundamental idea that, that is trying to be conveyed in in this dialogue. And you know, I'm just wondering what what people think. You know, first of all, is 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 there are there dangers in writing? As as Thamus is saying here, you know, he, he points to some clear dangers in writing uh, if we rely on it exclusively, perhaps. And so, uh, you know, what do you what do you think? Is, is there wisdom in what he's saying? Is there wisdom in in Thamus's advice here? So, James, I think uh, I, I'm not sure about the answer for that, but I want to bring another challenge. When you say remembering and reminding, the difference between these two concepts. What do we think about what is the difference between wisdom and knowledge? And are they connected? We remember things, we are reminded thing, things, we know things, but do, does everything we know affects us? Just because we know, does that mean that it's part of our wisdom? Or am I just carrying that megabytes or like, you know, uh, sources of knowledge with me, but they are not processing in my thinking. So I I think they are, are related. A, a very fundamental question, I think, Eva, you know, the difference between wisdom and knowledge and certainly something that uh, comes through a lot of Plato's dialogues. And we saw that in the Mino again. Um, you know, maybe, you know, this idea that knowledge has to be tied down before it can even be considered you know, in the context of wisdom is something that's important. And how do we tie down knowledge if it's not in speech and testing limits? Um, just a very short, a, yeah. just a very short, like, if we really want to be wiser, we'll have to know less. And that's chaotic, <laughs> scary, so. Yeah. Well, or, or maybe, you know, maybe it's not, maybe the word less, we could replace that with the word general. You know, and, and to take it to what maybe Plato was saying in the first part of Phaedrus with this idea of the general forms, maybe we have to stop thinking about all of those individual particulars, which are just going to, you know, multiply many, many times over when the quantum computer comes out, for example. You know, there would be so many data points out there, so many more data points than we're used to dealing with now. How are we going to generalize them? So how are we going to take them back to the kind of core underlying principle back to the general form and uh, this is where i really think the power of plato's theory of form starts to come through is this this and, and the power of the human mind in terms of being able to generalize these ideas uh so no thank you raise a very good and important point and i want to go here to to james and to welcome james for joining us and, and james what do you think well thank you i think that writing allows you to focus thoughts more clearly 
get to a gut reaction as to what your thoughts are. Uh, when you write, you put it down on paper and you kind of reconsider what you're thinking about. I think it allows you to focus and critique yourself. And uh, so I think there's a real advantage to writing in that it, it allows for clarification. I think there's also a danger and that when people start writing uh, to a great extent, they sometimes think they know more than they really do. So they mistake their opinion for knowledge or wisdom. Uh, so I think it, it's a two-way issue, um, both exaggerating your own uh, confidence in what you're, what you're thinking, but also clarifying your thoughts at the same way. That's my thought. No, I think I'm just writing a note actually on, on what you said. You know, I, this idea that writing allows focus, I think, is a very important point. And uh, um, I like the way you said that, but then also, you know, that risk of generating overconfidence. And I was so I was just thinking about that quote from 263A that I read just before we did that that reading and this idea of just and good. You know, if if somebody wrote down a definition of just and good uh, 2,400 years ago in Plato's time, what would they have written? in their definitions. And if we weren't allowed to adjust those definitions since then, would we be stuck? Would we would be would we be trapped in that paradigm now still, you know, or um, having this ability of this two-way communication through uh, through dialogue and dialectic and speech, you know, are we allowed to kind of change the meaning, adjust the meaning of things over time, but still go back to that general form of justice and good whatever that is we're all seeking that general form but nobody's told us what that form is um so thank you for that um we'll go to uh actually we'll start with jose who hasn't spoken before and then we'll go to joel and jk so jose welcome hey james uh i wanted to draw a parallel of uh, this myth of the egyptian king and and the, the god like right now i I have the feeling that uh, in some parts of the education system, they are teaching the kids how to use Google rather than how to learn things. So kids now, they feel that they know everything because they can Google, but in reality, they don't know anything because they didn't learn things like a, with dialectic. So in the old days, I, I can say, used to learn things more in dialectic. You used to read, you had to have a teacher, you discuss, uh, you read several articles, several viewpoints, and you really learn things like that because you tie that up and all these, all these things that Plato says. But now they feel like, oh, I can Google so, so I know, but I don't have any context, any any reference, and if Google one day is wrong, they are wrong as well. Okay, this is my point. It's it's an important point. I mean, uh, you know, there are forms of, like if you Google a site that has somebody speaking, yes, you will hear speech, but it's that one-way communications as opposed to that two-way communications. So you don't get, you know, it was Reggie was talking before about vibrations. You're not getting that, um, you know, ability to vibrate with each other and, and share some sort of find together some sort of harmony. Um, so you know that, you know, are we better in are we better in speaking? You know, is it like, you know, that example in the Mino where um, at the very beginning, Mino says, yeah, I know what virtue is. You know, virtue is this, that, and the other thing. And then by the end of it, 
you know, is totally confused, doesn't know what virtue is, because in, in the process of speaking has discovered what he doesn't know. And maybe that's the important part about speaking is that we can go into things thinking that we know, but when we speak to others and realize that very in contrast and we're looking at different limits, maybe we don't know what we think we know. And maybe that's an important thing that we need to discover in this technological age. Uh, we'll go to Joel and then JK. So it's not an answer, but it's just a quick joke. Can you remind me real quick, James, what was the question, the job of a teacher to the students? If the teacher was supposed to do one of two things, was it like to remind or what was the other one? Can you, you... Well, the, the contrast in this, in this, uh, in this uh, section that we just read in 275A to 275B is making a contrast between remembering and reminding. And in it, he says, uh, remembering is something that you do internally, whereas reminding is something where you're taking external information and you're reminding people of what the external information says. So remembering comes from within, reminding comes from without. That, that was the legend of Thamus and Thoth that we just read. Okay, well, I, I chuckled a little bit when you read that because I, uh, I, I don't have an answer to that yet, but I, I remember saying to myself, like, it, it depends on the teacher, Right. Because if I can remember back in high school and college, like if like a, a class I went through in biology or chemistry, you could put a gun to my head an hour after the lecture and I couldn't tell you what I remembered. But if I watched like a, a great course episode of Sean Carroll, Brian Green or Brian Cox about the multi-universe, Roger Penrose cyclic model, uh, and, uh, quarks, I'm like, like running around trying to like um, talk about that with somebody. And then my, like, you know, my girlfriend would like be like, call James or Eva, like to like bug them about this. Right. Like I want to pass that on to somebody else, but it, like, it depends on the teacher. Right. So yeah, uh, just, uh, yeah, I couldn't just a quick little joke there. Yeah. Well, thank you. And certainly, you know, the, the idea that the soul can be forgetful and <laughs> believe me, as I age, I realize that that's, uh, that's certainly the case with my with me that uh, and and you know we, when we're faced with so much data in, in the world now that it, it is hard to remember all of this right and and so I think what you just said Joel is sometimes that when you remember things or derive meaning internally it sticks with you longer and and the soul isn't going to forget it and, and the forgetful soul is something that uh, Thamus is talking about at two seventy five a to two seventy five b uh, J K what do you think this idea of uh, re remembering and reminding. Seems like the, the okay. The, the remembering is 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 what you remember within, and and it's like um, that kind of remembering has to do with the collective memories that you have, you know, uh, you know, from your from yourself. But then, you know, and then the correspondingly through writing, you know, as opposed to speech, you are reminded you know, by the collective without, you know, uh, that's outside of you. And uh, for me, they, they kind of like, you know, are, are contrasting at that same time. It's, um, it's a little bit paradoxical that uh, that's something that you could do, you know, individually in, in writing, you know, where you, where you focus on, on the, your uh, an individual process is derived from a public um, what um, a method, the language that you learn from, mm -hmm. uh, from the public. But uh, but what is also um, whereas uh, you know for Plato the uh, the process of dialogue and so forth 
is a is a process of remembering your your collective uh, you know um, wisdom from within. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it makes me think of um, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's that I think you just tied it to what James said in terms of the the idea of you know writing maybe allows for individual focus. Um, but in terms of the collective meaning of it, um, we still need some sort of two-way communication channel. And so I think that's, that's an important point. Um, we'll go to Moshe. Can I, and, and, can I um, jump in, James, here? Yeah, we'll, we'll go to Greg and then Moshe. Okay, thank you. Uh, you know, I look at this uh, remembering and reminding, seeing the story, and I find it so fascinating from the mindset at the time that they probably don't have much to remember compared to our days. And probably remembering, uh, and then the language was, uh, they don't have really anything writing. So, so the ability to remember and then, you know, the, the skill to remember probably is ranked very high. And that's why there's a pre, 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 pre-assumption there. You know, uh, if you anything that, that uh, it does not help uh, remembering is bad. So there's, there's already prejudgment there. So, so that's why that, uh, and then the deemed remembering, I mean, reminding is not as good a thing. And yet all this human development indicating that we start to develop more and more technologies regarding reminding. And even <laughs> another point is here, I find that Socrates uh, himself and, uh, you know, historians has been uh, asking the question that why uh, Socrates didn't leave anything written down and all he's saying has to go through Plato. I remember reading one of the uh, dialogues, I forgot which one, Socrates actually saying that himself, uh, he doesn't like uh, to write down because that will reduce his ability to remember. So so one of the reasons that Socrates didn't write anything down is that he doesn't like, he didn't like uh, writing. And he want to just uh, in that way, then then and then he will not lose the ability to remember it. And that's why Socrates remember all these uh, stories uh, very well. He, he threw out this this dialogue that uh, uh, everything happened in the history. Who was named? He has a great memory, but that's his uh, attitude towards writing. And uh, and and he has bring to another point is, uh, you know, it's interesting that that whenever there's a new technology come along, and, and that's come on writing, and there's always resistance. As it's going to be doomed or kind of diminish your current skills. And I remember very well when calculators, calculators just come out. And uh, people, you know, you, 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 you saw how these days uh, kids don't know how to uh, multiplication and, uh, and, uh, and uh, division anymore because you use a calculator. And now what? You know, it helps us reduce to learn some of the skills which was essential but not necessary anymore when you have a calculator. And, and the, the list is going on and on, and I think a new technology does help us in doing something, but, but the, the, the nature of it is it will reduce our natural ability. And it goes back to, you know, even to, to the early days, we, we rely on hunting and, uh, and do everything, but once we develop agriculture, we don't know how to hunt. You know, so so this progress of technology, new technology, always take away some kind of we call it innate ability, and which in a way it is it, bad individually at the time, but over overall from evolution point of view, it's it's very very important and great in in advance of our our mind ability, and then comes the 
to the brain because the brain has a limited ability. If you have to do everything by the brain, then you don't have ability. I mean, room left for other things. Mm-hmm. So in a way that come back to the wisdom and the knowledge, we leave the brain to do the more and more important things, and then leave the trivial things to to be done by technologists. And the computer is another example. Anyway, that's my comment. Thank you. And the point that you made about technology being developed now to remind rather than to help us to remember, I think is a is an important point that we should consider. We've just got unfortunately about five minutes left. Maybe we can go if it's okay with you, Eva. Maybe we can go another five minutes after. Um, so we'll we'll take about ten minutes to to wrap up here. But uh, um, we'll go we'll go to Moshe. Moshe, welcome. This. A very strange passage, I think. Um, it perplexes me because, I mean, earlier in the Phaedrus, we were talking about, um, you know, how the soul goes into the human body uh, by uh, a process of getting close to the form. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the souls below the surface uh, plunging, treading on one another, each striving to be first. And in there, the confusion and perspiration and extremity of effort, you know, they're, they're, they're clawing at each other to get closer to the forms. And it says later, why, why is it important to get closer to the forms? Because it says it's the, it's the proximity to the form in which God abides and in beholding which he is what he is. So God himself is only God because of his proximity to the forms, which have to be metaphorically higher okay or, or more important and i i want to juxtapose that well there are a couple of other things that i want to juxtapose this with uh, one is in the in the what you were describing before the the passage at uh, 263a but when one speaks of justice and goodness we part company and are at odds with one another and with ourselves i'm using the joette translation just before that Socrates makes the distinction of saying, well, when we speak of iron or silver, we know exactly what we're talking about. And I think that if you take a look at the, at, at the passage of when we speak of justice and goodness, and instead of talking about justice and goodness, we talk about triangles and circles. We certainly have a clear idea of what triangles and circles are. So there are these concepts that, that we, in mathematics particularly, that we can be very uh, you know, that we can be very, uh, have, have a great deal of, of knowledge about. I, I would tie that around with some of the things that Wittgenstein says in the Tractatus about, um, about w- what meaningful language is, but that's another discussion. The thing that's peculiar, if I can wrap this all together, maybe I can't do it, about this idea of reminding and remembering is that is that the soul knows, the soul that gets into the human being as opposed to a giraffe is one that has gotten close to the forms and already has the knowledge, but it must be reminded of the knowledge, okay? It must recollect the knowledge, okay? And we recollect by being reminded. That's the whole thing about Socrates and the Timaeus asking those questions that remind him of the things he already knows. So for Plato to put this in here, as I don't know, is he being tongue in cheek in in criticizing himself and saying, well, you know, this remembered stuff is important. It's more important than being reminded. But wait, 
we have to be reminded in order to be able to recollect the things that we had already learned when we had scratched our way closer to the forms. So if you'd comment on that, I'd be tickled. Thank you. And, and um, you know, I think it, it's a good point to, to kind of wrap up on because, uh, and unfortunately we won't get, but I'd ask Eva, actually, if you just put Eva on the screen, the, that reading again uh, on the third page, because it relates to something that we won't have time to get to today. And my big aha moment in, in Phaedrus was at 277, uh, 277C. And we won't get a chance to look at that today, but 277C is on the last page of the of the reading. But we'll just look at this reading on Themis and Thoth. And I would just point out um, what I think is particularly important in here, which also relates to what I just said about 277C. But in this reading of Themis and Thoth, right near the end, uh, or you know, mostly down in that paragraph, uh, the, the last paragraph, it says, uh, in fact, Writing will induce, for, introduce forgetfulness into the soul of those who learn it. They will not practice using their memory because they will put their trust in writing, which is external. And then I think the key words here, at least for me, and it says writing is external and depends on signs that belong to others. And to me, as I read this, um, I'm thinking, okay, so maybe we need to each develop our own signs our own symbology, the things that have meaning to us based on our life experiences. And to me, this, this was the most powerful part of this particular uh, section in here was this, this idea that we have to develop our own internal symbology to relate these things to. So if, if the words justice and good or just and good are mentioned to me, well, I will relate that to things that happen in my life. I will relate that to things that I have found unjust. And, I have, and things that I have found not to be good. And so I'll look for my own contrasts and develop my own internal meaning. But I think that's maybe this, this part of, uh, of you know, being able to um, you know, not rely on external symbology, but to develop our own internal um, symbology as well that, you know, as Greg said, to keep that mental process going so that we don't default to somebody else's meaning. Because once we default to somebody else's meaning, we lose that maybe kind of ability to, to have some sort of agency in our own lives. Um, and so I think that's that's maybe an important uh, point to consider. And I, I thank you for raising it. I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a very key point. And you know, maybe I'll just end by the key words in 277C, which I think relate to this. So this is on the last page of a... Um, uh, the next section, it's actually the last paragraph on this last page here. Um, and to me, the, the key thing in, in here is what Socrates says. First, you must know, uh, he says in terms of writing, first, you must know the truth concerning everything you are speaking or writing about. You must learn how to define each thing in itself. Thing may be meaning concept in itself, and having defined it, you must know how to divide it into kinds until you reach something indivisible. And I read that, and that to me was the big aha moment. Uh, it, it's taking the, the particulars that we deal with in our daily lives in which we base our meanings, and it's taking it back to the general, you know, taking some sort of reasoned account, taking 
that which has become back to that which is that indivisible is you know that in eternal infinite is you know something that is indivisible and if you know thinking about mathematics you know well thinking maybe something that's prime is divisible only by itself and one and you know maybe maybe some you know finding the prime basis of um, of something is is kind of the key here and so maybe that's the the real power of this uh, of this idea of, of developing your own symbology is so that you can then take the general form and make it into some kind of reasoned account. Um, and so I just thank you for that question, Moshe. And I, I think, you know, we can obviously go on for a long time uh, about this. And I really want to, I, I think we will come back to, to Phaedrus at some point. I, I really, as I said, every time I read it, I find new meaning in it. So um, we're unfortunately at the point where we need to wrap up today's session, but I just, you know, before I do, there's just a couple of things that I wanted to say. I didn't say at the beginning, but I think next time, um, I think next time we'll go and, and look at Critias, which is a very short dialogue. I was going to do this actually some weeks back and I decided to get into Phaedrus first, but I, I'd like to go to Critias, which is really the, the remainder of Plato's legend of Atlantis. Um, it's a very short dialogue. It's only about a dozen pages, so it, it's an easy read. Uh, but it does pick up on the themes of language that we're discussing today. Um, and I think it will be, and I'll, I'll put in the meetup notice, that uh, we can kind of remind ourselves about the first part of Timaeus, which also talks about Atlantis. And so we'll, we'll look at Critias. We'll focus on Critias next time, but we'll, we'll, we'll you know, bring Timaeus into it as well, because uh, certainly the first few pages of Timaeus talk about Atlantis. So maybe a bit of a, a little bit of a fun diversion, maybe from some of the the depths of meaning that we're being, that we get ourselves into here in, in the Phaedrus. But uh, I, I think there's a purpose maybe that Plato has with this legend of, of Atlantis that has gripped the human imagination ever since he wrote it. Um, so we'll look at Critias and, and then I just, you know, again, I wanted to, you know, before passing it back to Eva to wrap wrap us up for today, I wanted to just thank everybody so much for for attending and just great ideas. We will get this posted on the the podcast uh, site um, on rss.com. It's also available on Spotify um, now. So um, you know, just so many great ideas that people have brought forth that I didn't think about before, and you know, so I've learned in the process, and I hope everybody else has. And you know, again, thank you to our our new participants today and and you know certainly a lot of knowledge has been added by your participation so greatly appreciate that and i will pass it over to to eva to wind us up thank you uh who believes that we shouldn't leave this will be a uh this is a tough episode to finish up and i can't stop mentioning that when i heard Socrates saying like, now you know how you have to know how to divide things. His image of his fingers and playing, trying to put into categories that was speaking to me on the schools of Athens, his presence there. So this was a big connection for me too. Well, we'll have to finish this anyway, so I'll have to do this. Thank you for joining today's live discussion and listening, friends. This was Plato's Pod, which was sponsored by three meetup groups, Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, and Online Rebels. 
always exciting to hear various perspectives, which we believe Plato and Platon crowd. Thank you, James Myers, for uh, preparing. We know you're always ready to hear and learn with us. I'm Eva Ellis. It was my privilege to coordinate today's meeting. See you at another episode, friends. Thank you.